This is episode 111 of Off Script with Trish Glose. Intimate interviews with interesting people in front of me today. Joining me via Skype, I should say, I have Rebecca Bender, CEO and founder of RBI, which is Rebecca Bender Initiative. Correct, okay. yes. Also author of In Pursuit of Love. She also has a podcast. Um, you're a motivational speaker. You have lots of job titles, Rebecca Bender. Yeah. Thanks. Yes, we do. Um, you are, your story, and we're going to hear it today, which I'm super excited about, but you are, I don't want to call you a victim because you're a survivor of, of sex trafficking. Yes, we're, I'm a survivor of human trafficking. Um, and we just use everything that we've been through to try to make a difference. Yeah. It's, survivors want to feel like everything we've been through wasn't for nothing. Okay, we're going to hear your story for sure, but I like to start all of my conversations with, where are you from originally, Rebecca Bender? I am born and raised right in Southern Oregon, fourth generation Southern Oregonian. My parents, my grandparents, and my great-grandparents are all from here. Okay, so you went to school in Southern Oregon, you went high school, whole nine yards? Yep. Okay. All well, of it. What was it like growing up in Southern Oregon? I love it here. I it's kind of I think that Southern Oregon's the hidden gem that most people think I Oregon. Know. They think, yeah, don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, you know, we we don't get the rain like the like the Pacific Northwest is infamous for, and I think we're so close to the California border that it's still we get all four seasons. So I love it. We get snowy Christmases and hot rivers for the summer. It's great. I love it here. So growing up, were were you more in like rural areas of Southern Oregon? So I lived in Cave Junction growing up. My dad worked for Rough and Ready. This is back when Cave Junction was kind of a booming. Well, it's yeah. never been completely booming, but when the city really revolved around the lumber mill. And um, and so until I was about uh, in the eighth grade, we moved to Grants Pass. And I ended up going to North and then GP. And then I transferred out to Illinois Valley my senior year to avoid the senior project. But because um, I still had so much family out there. But yeah, I grew up kind of skipping rocks at the river and going to swim holes that only locals know about. And all my cousins and aunts. Um, my mom taught aerobics there in Cave Junction. So I grew up in the downtown Body Works Center, they called it. And it was an 80s kid. So we had the whole bandana and leotard and everything. It was, Perfect. It was a good childhood. Did you have big bangs? Of course. Uh -huh. I had even silver capped teeth and like big bangs and a perm. Oh, my third grade picture is lovely. <laughs> I remember uh, there was definitely a method to the big bangs, right? Because you had some going down and then you had some flipped up. Well, and when you're in elementary school, mm -hmm. you don't have the down as much because your parents don't trust you with that 90s curling iron. So you had to just do the up wave rat. Aquanet, rat, aquanet, it was the style. <laughs> There's an art to it. There's an art to the Big Bang. And someone said, let's bring it back. And I'm like, no, let's not. Let's not yeah, bring let's back. Yeah, let's not. Yeah, it's good. It's good um, right where it is. So high school, what are your what are your dreams in high school? What are you looking to, to be when you grow up? I had lots of different ideas. I mean, I used to want to be on Saturday Night Live. I loved making jokes and being a part of the fun. I've always been kind of like a fun person. And that has actually been a complaint I get sometimes when I share my story that I will have people say I'm too happy, that it's a hard topic and I shouldn't, shouldn't be happy. And it's, it's so hard for me not 
to be because I've always been kind of this comedian. I was the, I put on an acting group in the fourth grade. I was always put on this little comedy my teacher let us and used to want to be on Saturday Night Live. And then I joined ROTC and I thought maybe I'd be a sniper. thought that would be fun. Um, but more realistic goal, I changed to possible architecture okay. and was accepted into Oregon State University and was going to go be a beaver. Okay. Uh, did you make it there to OSU? I got accepted and I had my dorm room and then I got pregnant and I made the tough decision to unenroll from the university and go to community college. Okay. And that's kind of when things started to change for me. So you were what, 18 at this time? Yeah, 17, almost 18, yeah. And pregnant I graduated at, a year early. Okay, and you were pregnant at 17 years old? Yeah, barely. I mean, I was about to turn 18, so. Okay. Um, when you found out, was it something that was like, this is a good thing, or were you just like, oh my gosh, I'm too young to have a baby? All of the above, Okay. right? It felt like really scary to suddenly realize that your life is gonna drastically change and that all these goals that you had may be put on hold. And having to tell your parents who had worked so hard for you to make it to college and, all, and help you through all the things and, and be so close as to have your dorm room assigned. Like I knew which building I was gonna be in. And, and so I felt like I was disappointing so many people. Um, but there was part of me that just knew that I wanted this little baby. I didn't know if it was a boy or a girl. Um, and I wanted to lean into that and I wanted to keep her. So I'm so glad I did. She's an amazing young woman today. She's 20 and she's making big, big changes in the world in her life. And I'm so grateful for her. Yeah. And I hear this a lot, you know, um, when, when women say, yeah, I, I was, I got pregnant when I was 18, 19 and it, it came as a shock and it was very scary and it was not what I envisioned my path to be. But now looking back, it's that I'm glad I didn't change anything about that. Yeah, absolutely. She's also what kept me really fighting for my life when my, when things took a, a drastic turn. I don't know that if I didn't have someone to fight for mm -hmm. that I would have, um, pulled that strength up to really find a way out. So okay. she, she was my catalyst. So you said this is when things started to change and started to change for the worse? Yeah, I was now, my friends had gone off to the U of O, had moved out of their dorm room into an apartment. They had an extra room and they invited me to move in. And I thought, finally, things are gonna change for me. I'm gonna get out of my small town, out of, you know, out of community mm -hmm. college and, go up to the big city of Eugene and get to live my best life and things were going to be better. And you just have all these ideas as a small town kid getting going, being able to leave on your own and go sure. off to college. And, and it was on campus though, that I started to have those same um, feelings resurface from some of my childhood, even though it was, you know, a good, good help, you know, normal childhood. I mean, there was always, there's always some traumas even in good homes. Right. Sure. And, and my parents had divorced when I was young and it was a really ugly divorce. And, Suddenly my mom went from single mom to, to working two or three jobs. And so there was just a lot between nine and 13 that was really hard for me in those formative years. And those feelings resurfaced at college, feeling really alone, really unimportant, really unwanted. Um, obviously in hindsight, I can pinpoint those now as an adult. And when you're 
when you're 18, 19, you're not realizing, like, I think trauma from my 10 year old <laughs> self, like traumatic childhood was creating a vulnerability. You know, you don't think like no that. way. So you're just thinking, who's going to like me? How can, you know, who, do, where do I fit? Where's my tribe? What's my community? Those type of thoughts. And it was at that time that I met a young man. He was about, he said he was 24 and I was um, almost 19 by now. And he was funny and charming and he was from Portland and he had all these great big ideas and adventures and ambition. And he owned a company and he really sold me what I think I was really hungry for, which was a way out of just being a single mom, trying to make ends meet for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in hindsight, now that I've worked in this field for a really long time, I know that that's what traffickers do is they identify vulnerable people and they and they sell them a bill of goods of exactly what they need and want. Um, and that's the epitome of fraud, which is a, a part of the definition of human trafficking, the use of force, fraud or coercion um, in order to exploit somebody into commercial exploitation, right? And so when you think of, when you hear people's stories, it's easier to identify like, oh, that was fraud at point of recruitment, mm -hmm. got it. Oh, when it's when you started saying no and things got dangerous, there was force at point of recruit at point of destination. And so, you don't think those ways when you don't know the legal definitions of what human trafficking looks like. But when you hear the stories, you can start to see where all the check sure. boxes, where all the boxes get checked. So, any paid attention to you? Paid attention, paid attention to my daughter. I was suddenly not the girl on campus with the kid that people were kind of avoiding, and you know, and it's you know, you don't want to sound like these these things were really important to you. But as a young person, you, when you're not able to be a part of football games and parties and college life, and, and it does start to feel really isolating after a while, you start to feel really alone and lonely. And that's what he preyed on, was offering me a sense of family and a sense of purpose. And um, this dream to be able to get out and get out of poverty, get out of just trying to struggle. And so I I was excited and I thought that I had met the one. Um, can we either call him by his name or a name? In the book, we refer to him as Brian. Brian, okay. Just so just so we can kind of keep the story a little consistent. Yes. So Brian's pro promising you to, to get you out of this life that you're just not happy with. It's like, baby, I'm gonna change everything for you. Yeah, I've got this big company. I'm in the entertainment industry. I work in Portland. I represent all these bands. Mm -hmm. um, I'm this big music executive and you're so smart and you can help. And, you know, there's all this future for you. And, you know, don't you know what exists out there that you could really be a part of? And, right. and so I thought in, he had taken me up to Portland several times to concerts and we would go behind this like backstage. And it seemed like he was, you know, talking business with different groups. So so it wasn't just this one little bill of goods that I was sold, but it was, I was witnessing it in front of me. And so it, it was believable. Sure. And especially for a girl who wanted to be on Saturday Night Live and started a comedy troupe. I mean, you know, like he's just, like you said, he's checking off all these boxes for you going, yes, this, I've made it done. Yeah. I mean, and obviously I wasn't thinking in the time, like, oh, maybe I'll get on Saturday Night Live. I just was thinking, <laughs> 
you know, like it's exciting. It's exciting to get wrapped up in an idea that you could be more than your small town has made you think you could be, right? When sometimes your only options in tiny little Cave Junction, Oregon, are working at the local lumber mill or the local grocery store, it felt exciting to think I could do more than this. And so I was swept up in that ability to maybe make something of my life. Um, Not that that's a bad thing. My family still all lives out there and I'm so proud of them. But when, and I'm, and I still live here, so I'm still proud of myself. But when you're a young person, I think at 16, 17, 18, there's something in you that's like, I don't like my family and you're embarrassed of everything your parents do. So it was that season for me. And so I, you know, I want, I hope people hear that. I'm not putting anybody. I don't think, I honestly don't think you have to justify it whatsoever. I completely understand what you're talking about. And those who do have those goals for themselves, I mean, I get it. I grew up in a small town in South Carolina and actually moved to Las Vegas when I was 16. And I had ginormous dreams for myself. And so I completely understand what you're saying. And I don't feel like you have to justify that at all. It makes total sense. Um, you guys actually moved to Las Vegas, correct? You and Brian. Yeah, so we had dated for about six months and I fell head over heels in love and he invited me to move in with him. And then he told me that his job was relocating him to Las Vegas, entertainment capital of the world. That's where some of his bands were getting signed. That was what was going to help them to really further their career. And so I was excited. I thought this would be the next step in in a natural progression of a relationship. Okay, so you get to Vegas with your daughter. Uh... I mean, are things great in the beginning? No, things changed the day that we arrived. Shut up. What happened? Yeah. So he told me that he told me to get dressed up. He was going to take me out on the town. Now, we had vacationed in Vegas one time prior and we would, you know, you'd go see all the nightclubs, which Mm -hmm. is such a big deal when you're, again, just small town farm girl is like Vegas is like New York City. You know, (laughs) It's it's crazy. The lights are pretty invigorating. And so, um, the second trip, I was excited to see it again, and, and I assumed that those those were the same things that we would go do. So I got dressed up in my best club gear, and I'd borrowed my friend's fake ID and um, his brother, who had helped us move, who I had met lots of times, and he off, we, he said his brother was going to watch the baby and that we were going to go out. And I thought, that seems normal. So we I got dressed up, and he took me to a dead-end street we did not go to a nightclub. He drove me to this dead end street. He flipped his car around and parked on the curb. And there was this deserted strip mall on the right hand side. There was no signs, no lights, just like a old abandoned strip mall. And he said, um, he put the car in park. And I remember him saying, I spent a lot of money to get you here. And that was money I was using for my job. And I need to get that money back because it's what I'm using for the bands, you know, and going through all the things he paid for, you know, U-Haul and furniture and food and first and last. And I can remember having this moment at first where I felt um, embarrassed that I was this young girl that didn't know how much it cost to move halfway across the country. And so I felt naive and I felt um, st- I felt stupid. I felt embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, well, I'm going to need you to go in that room. The one door that has a camera above it, I want you to go in that door and get my money back. It's an escort service. And I said, escort, that sounds like prostitution. No way. And he said, it's not like that here. This, this is how it works in Vegas. This is how they send dancers to those nice suites. And you'll just be like in a bikini at the pool at those really fancy sweet suites you see on commercials. You can trust me. I know this industry, you know, that type of thing. And 
I said, yeah, I'm from a small town, but I'm not that naive. Escort means prostitution. I'm not like I draw the line there. And because he had already pressured me and I'd already been in strip clubs in Eugene before. And Mm -hmm. so he had already began slowly expanding my boundaries, which is now obviously a red flag that we talk to people about, especially young people. And when I said, no, the escort's prostitution, I'm not that naive. Um, That's when he slapped me across the face. And he said, you're going to go in that room and you're going to get my money back. And I can remember having this moment of like, all the emotions of a 19 year old girl being hit for the first time. But then I had this cold, like, like this awakening moment where I thought, I don't know where my baby is. I just got here literally last night. I don't know my address by heart. I didn't send it home to my mom. Even if I wanted to jump out and run right now, I wouldn't know where to have anybody take me. So I just thought, well, maybe I can trust him. You justify, you push it down. You know, he loves me. He wouldn't hurt me. I'll just get the money back dancing. I can believe him and things will be better tomorrow. And that's what I just kind of told myself um, to comply really out of fear. But in the moment, I, I don't think in my young traumatic moment, I understood I was complying out of fear. I just kept saying, it'll be better tomorrow. It'll be better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Things will go back to normal tomorrow. And I got out of the car. And you walked into the, the motel room? I walked into the escort service where they asked me for my ID to show I was over 18. And there's a dry erase board on the wall that said blonde, brunette, redhead, Asian, exotic with kind of stripper names underneath, for lack of better words. Sorry, I hope it's not offensive. But I'm like, okay, well, it's like a strip club. We've got different mm-hmm. names on there. And and then this lady pulls out this form after she took a photocopy of my ID and it looked it's like a medical release form kind of, you know, all the tiny, small, fine print. You have to initial by each thing and you're kind of looking over it, but you're not really reading it. Let's be honest. And she says, it just says that you're not going to solicit. We don't hire those kind of girls. And I thought, okay, we'll see. I can believe him. It's, it's like a dancing club. It's like a dance. Right. You know, you're getting, you're put, being put on deck on this dry erase board. You're showing that you're over 18. You're signing that you're not going to solicit maybe I can trust him. And so I got back in the car and the phone rang right away and we were sent to our first quote unquote call and it was not a fancy hotel and it was not just dancing. Right. It was a lot, it was a lot more in fact. So, um, and then this continues for a long time. I ended up getting trafficked for nearly six years. Um, I was, during that time I was bought and sold between three different traffickers. I had two men tattoo their names on my back, like a piece of cattle cattle, so I could be returned to my owner. I was hospitalized for dehydration and exhaustion. I collapsed in the Hard Rock Casino one night and broke up in the emergency room. I had been starting to be only given a few hours to sleep um, because we knew the feds were watching us at that point. I had been, um, my face had been broken in five times for the amount of abuse I had withstood. My palate cracked twice. My palate cracked my nose twice. My maxillofacials and turbinides impounded. I, um, by 21, I'd become a full-blown addict, addicted to drugs to mask my feelings. Sure, I was going to ask you about about drug use. My mom took my daughter. She told me that she wasn't. I couldn't get her back until I turned my life around. Everybody knew something was wrong, but I don't think any small town family thinks human trafficking because also we envision these scenes of kidnapping. And so when your daughter is slowly um, 
you're un, you're only hearing from her once a month. Things are starting to get suspicious. Things things are you're starting to worry. Um, my mom even said she'd call 911 and they would say, without an address, ma'am, there's nothing that we can do. Your daughter's over 18. And she would say, well, that's the problem is they'll only give me a P.O. box. Like, I don't actually know where my daughter is. Right. And so, like everybody knew something was wrong, but no one thought human trafficking back then. It just was like, you know, trafficking happened in foreign countries with kidnapped kids and you know, was this domestic violence? Was this prostitution? Was it drug addiction? No one really knew um, that this man was taking my daughter and abusing me and forcing me into um, prostitution for years. Right. Was it a feeling of that first, that first night, that first call, you go into this room and sex is forced? And is there a feeling of with you like, I can just say no, I can just run, or was it this feeling of being trapped that you can't, you have to do what's in front of you, otherwise you're gonna, I, I mean, what, what was that feeling like? Were you feeling trapped? Was it, I mean, obviously you were freaking out scared. Yeah, I mean, I think we all, we all hear about the term fight, flight, or freeze. Yeah. And I think, I think if we forget freeze, it leads to judgment real quick on people, right? And so for me in that moment, I'm like, I'm thinking what's going on, like this isn't, dancing. I'm starting to get a little bit nervous. And then I just started to freeze. Like, what do I do? What do I do? What do I, I could, and so you're kind of in my mind going through things that you could do. I could run, I could get it. And so you're kind of frozen, like thinking through a plan and then it's over and you're like, okay, well now I don't have to think of a plan now. Now I need to know my next step. And so it just felt like I froze and by the time I could think of what to do, the situation changed. And so now you're thinking of the next thing to try to do. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of my friends who's another survivor, she shares her story a lot too. And she, she even described it being in the car with her trafficker that she kept thinking at the next red light, I'm going to jump out of the car. But she said, every light was green and you were only three blocks away. And so I think we all picture these, these movie moments. And we have to remember that in real life, things don't always line up just like the movie does. Sure. The screenplay is paced out through certain act breaks for a reason. And, and you're creating that tension and those moments as the, as the writer for a reason. But in real life, you might not ever hit a red light. And right. in real life, you might freeze for four minutes and then your situation changes. And, and I think when we forget that, it, we can tend to judge people's decisions instead of feeling like, wow, I couldn't imagine what that would be like mm -hmm. to be 19 in this big city, scared to death, your trafficker waiting outside in the car, you have no clue where your baby is, and you froze for four minutes, and I'm so sorry that you had to live through that. Yeah. That's what I would want people to th think. That makes you a little emotional. Yeah, because I think the stigma around why didn't you do this? Why didn't you mm -hmm. do that? Everyone thinks from a really healthy adult brain, and they forget that you're not you're not a healthy adult. You're a 19 year old traumatized person that doesn't really know how to navigate that moment that they're caught in. I, I think anyone that would judge, judge a decision by a victim in that situation that they've never been in is not only ignorant, but it's completely unfair. Like to say, I would do this. Like you have no idea what you would do if you were in that situation. And I guarantee you, a lot of us would freeze because, 
again, we're, we're looking at it from a from up here, looking down in going, oh, you can just run out, run out of the room. Right. And that's what, you know, it, it is hard. I think there's so many stigmas around mm -hmm. the issue of prostitution as a whole. And especially, you know, when this was happening to me years ago, it's this feeling of, am I being trafficked? Because I was taught stranger danger with a white minivan and to be careful for the guy offering me puppy and a candy. And so I'm like, I'm not even self-identifying that I'm in a trafficking situation. Yeah. I'm thinking my boyfriend is pressuring me to do things I'm really uncomfortable with, but I don't want to go back to being living in poverty as a single mom. And I don't, I'm now really embarrassed that I've crossed lines that I swore that I wouldn't have crossed, even though it was due to a him physically abusing me, right? Like you forget about the slap in the car of like, now I've experienced domestic violence and it's just all wrapped up in within an hour. And it's yeah. so much to try to figure out in what, in a short time. Um, and you're picturing stranger danger. And so you don't even know what to do. That's why I think talking about the issue, sharing about human trafficking and what it actually looks like in communities is so important because now I can teach kids in high school, kids off mm -hmm. at college, what to do when you're in a situation you're uncomfortable with, because that's what predators do. They are slowly pushing your boundaries. I mean, even look at the Epstein case, right? This, those girls went home to their families for dinner every single night. No one was ever kidnapped. They went to school every single day and nobody knew because we're all only picturing abduction. Right. The, I did watch that uh, Filthy Rich on Netflix. Absolutely. I would recommend everyone um, go check that out. After that, really first, after that first night, yeah, it's incredible. After that first night, do you go, you get back in the car, do you go back to your daughter or is there another call? Yeah, I mean, all night you would be on calls throughout the whole night. Okay. So he would drive you from call to call to call. I didn't have, you know, my own vehicle at that time um, until the night was over and then you would go home. And I thought it would be better the next day. And, you know, there was times when it, it would be better in terms of he wasn't forcing me into human trafficking every single night where he was um, back to the person that I, I fell in love with in the beginning. And so it's very much like domestic violence. So you're in this honeymoon cycle and this power and control wheel. And, um, and then it becomes this dangling carrot of like, oh, well, now we need to put new tires on the car or now we need. And so it just became this when you start realizing this isn't ever going to end, is it? It's when you realize you start really saying no and you start trying to leave. And that's when things tend to get really violent. Um, he would take my daughter. He would go um, kick my door in. I tried to change the locks to kick him out one day when he was gone. And right. I kicked my entire door in. I got all the way to the um, airport. They wouldn't sell me a plane ticket post 9-11 with cash. And I thought, well, he's not leaving me a debit card. Um, just all sorts of attempted escapes that you learn how to navigate through the years. And, and finally I did run and that's why I'm here after that long and that many um, years living in complete hopelessness and fear. Um, I did run. So was there ever a moment that you thought I, I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to be able to, to get out of this. And did you sort of resign to the fact that this is going to be your life? Did that ever happen to you? Or were you always thinking, no, I will not stay in this. I think there's absolutely moments that I resign to thinking this is just what this is just my life. Um, 
I don't know that I would use those words in that moment. You just mm -hmm. think like, you're just trying to get through every single day. It's almost like you're not even planning for the future. You're just trying to make it through each day. And so yeah. that's when that hopelessness comes in and is that you can't see a future. You're just trying to make it through today. And I think living in that constant state of fear of I'm, I'm always in trouble or threatened to be hurt at home. And the men that are buying you are very dangerous. And so you're playing Russian roulette every time you knock on a hotel room door. And so just living in this prolonged state of fear is what causes so much anxiety and depression and stress and PTSD and, and all of these long-term concerns with, um, with, the, with the industry of, of commercial exploitation. And I know this comes up a lot because people are like, well, if it was just legalized then all of this would be, and that's just not true because legalizing gender-based violence doesn't make it go away. It still makes it gender-based violence. Mm -hmm. It just now is creating less opportunities for people to investigate and, and confiscate electronics for investigation. I mean, it just puts less ability to actually um, get people out that don't want to be there. So anyway, yeah. yes, I did resign to kind of feeling like this is just my family. And there's other women in the home. You know, by the time we were at the end of the six years, I was in a home for three years where there was other women and other children and it becomes very much a cult-like feeling. Mm -hmm. um, Northern Colorado University actually did a research report a while back that showed that domestic human trafficking fit every single indicator of cult behavior. Wow. And so it felt very brainwashed. It felt like, what do you wish of me? You know, like it, I couldn't explain it in the moment, but it just felt like we all ate what he wanted to eat. And we'd go to a restaurant and he would just say like, they're all having what I'm having. And it just felt like every decision yeah. was made for you and you'd be rewarded for cooperation, which is what brainwashing does. And then you were punished for non-cooperation, not just physical punishment, but social ostracism. Mm -hmm. One of the girls I was trafficked with would be forced to go live in the legal brothels if she didn't obey the rules. She wasn't allowed to come home. Her punishment was not being with her, with us. Right. And so it just becomes very hard to navigate this new cult-like feeling of like, this is my family. These are my sister wives how can i leave the other women behind what about the other kids sure and so you form these bonds that are far beyond just your stockholm syndrome but thinking i just don't know how to do this and i don't know how to say goodbye and what if i never see him again and what if he takes everything out on the on the little boy and what how could i live with myself and so it's just like all those things you have to actually think about all the time when did the drug use start for you? Was it pretty early on? The drug use started early on with the first trafficker, but um, by the time I was 21, I went to rehab. He yeah. sent me to rehab. Actually, in Medford, Oregon was my first rehab place, an old place called Genesis. I don't think they're around anymore. No, but I remember that down. place. I think it's, it was in Talent, I believe. No, not Talent. Okay, Central yeah. Point. Central Point. Yeah, I, I, was, I went there. My trafficker paid cash for me to go to Genesis rehab. Wow. Um, because he quote unquote cared. <laughs> and, um, and so I ended up, I did not get clean there, but I got clean at another rehab. And um, so by the time I was 22, I was completely sober. I hadn't used drugs ever since. Okay. So I went back to my trafficker after that and ended up being trafficked for another four years clean and sober. And you had different traffickers. There wasn't just the Brian, right? Yeah. So how does that Correct. process work and why? Like, I mean, is he just, like, like, how does that, why does that even happen, I guess? 
Yeah, I mean, traffickers, their entire um, criminal enterprise is about trying to create as many members of their stable, this mm. is the word they would use, um, that they can. And, and for a variety of reasons, right? If a, if a trafficked victim um, goes to jail, then he's reliant on this, you know, diverse funding st revenue streams, for lack of better words. I mean, we need to remember this is a business to trafficker. These aren't crimes of passion. These aren't, this isn't domestic violence. This is a business. Mm -hmm. And so they're thinking about multiple product lines, multiple uh, blonde, brunette, redhead, Asian, exotic, keeping one of each in their stable. They literally um, have forums that they get together and talk about how to do this. They write books, traffickers. One trafficker wrote an article called How to Use Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs to Traffic Women and self-published it on a blog site. I mean, these are, these are groups of criminals that are teaching each other how to diversify your funding streams, how if one gets arrested, you'll have five more to rely on. Right. If one gets murdered, because women in prostitution have really high rates of homicide, um, you won't be completely out. So always keeping this net of product and always keeping people in a different cycle of that mm. exploitation. So there's what we call like a dating, grooming, breaking and turnout phase that most traffickers take their victims through. And so right now a trafficker could have three or four young women. I'm talking about 18 years old. He could have phone numbers that he's just texting that he met at the mall or or nowadays, especially with being online, you generally have met online at this point. Everyone's just being met online. And so he's texting and he's DMing and he's messaging. And out of those, you know, five young women that he's talking to, one might really show an interest. And so he's casting the net to see who's going to respond. If I send out 100 DMs today, is one going to respond? Is 10 going to respond? And so they're always needing somebody kind of up to bat. And that's why... Um, traffickers tend to find multiple women they'll trade women mm. this one only makes me 1700 a night maybe you can whip her into shape um sometimes they'll trade sometimes they'll use each other use one another to embarrass they call it a pimp role well they'll bring a victim to a trafficker's home and all the traffickers will beat her as form of punishment um it's just it's a very scary um, degrading industry of violence against women. And it's very much gang mentality. You have lots of kind of little gangs that mm -hmm. are living by a really certain set of rules and principles that are not what the normal society is living by. Wow. Did you ever run into on a call that was incredibly scary? Or, I mean, I'm sure they're all really scary, so that may be a really stupid question, but was there ever a call for you that I don't know, that you, that you still think about, that still haunts you? Lots. Mm. I mean, there's been several. There's been so, several that stand out that I, I write about in the book. Mm -hmm. um, one where I was almost strangled to death, and I thought, this is it. I'm, my baby's not going to have a mama. And I thought I was going to be strangled to death that day. Um, really scary. That's actually was kind of a turning point for me where I thought, I don't, I, I got to get out of this. Um, and then there's been others where men are so high on cocaine that they don't feel like they have got what they paid for. And so they lock you in rooms and beat you until either you'll give them your money back. I've been thrown out in hallways with my entire purse stayed in the hotel room. And then I'm like, oh, how am I supposed to drive home? My keys are in there. I've, I've had guys say, well, I'll just call the cops and told, tell them that you robbed me. So you're, you're up against a really, um, 
difficult system because now the cops see you as this criminal prostitute and you've got this buyer who all of the trust is going to be put on. And so you don't know who to trust. And then if your trafficker comes to your rescue, it solidifies that capture bond, which mm. is what we try to teach law enforcement now to break through and do the opposite that the trafficker is telling the victim that you're going to do. Um, show them that you're not going to take the, tr the the buyer's side, that you're going to hear her, that you're going to try to get her services, you're going to get her a victim advocate, you're not just going to take her kid, put it in child welfare, put the, the, the child in child welfare and, and arrest the victim, you know, try to do the opposite. And so that's what we work a lot with law enforcement to do, but lots of scary calls, oh, lots. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Um, how'd you get out, uh, ultimately? 2006, the feds raided our home. Um, a neighbor in Dallas, my trafficker had a, two homes in Dallas and one in Vegas, and one of the neighbors in Dallas, we were a big fan of see something, say something. Mm -hmm. This is exactly why our neighbor saw something suspicious, thought there's all these women and a man, they must be drug dealers. And that's what she called a report in on. And thankfully, after a short investigation, the sheriff's office said, this isn't drugs, this is a human trafficking ring. And um, they started opening a surveillance on us, I think it was about an 18 month surveillance and thankfully in um, March of 06, one of the homes was raided and my trafficker was indicted on $4 million of tax evasion that he had been laundering money through a local pizza shop. And unfortunately he had put most everything in the victim's socials. And so two women ended up getting sentenced to 13 months in prison for tax evasion mm. of their own exploitation. And it was at that time that I was able to run. I grabbed my baby. Um, I actually hopped a fence. I sat in a neighbor's backyard for a little bit in Vegas. And um, about nine months later, I was finally, I, I was waiting for him to call me to say it was safe to come home because the feds were raiding and the US Marshals had surrounded one of the other victims' homes. We thought they were coming to our house next. And then um, we waited for him to take a plea deal. And then I finally ran. I ran when he was gone one night. I packed everything I could and called my mom to put plane ticket on her credit card. You know, most people in trafficking, they don't have great families to call home mm -hmm. to. I'm very, very grateful. Majority of people in exploitation come out of foster care. In the state of Oregon, 95% of trafficked teens have been in foster care since age two. This isn't stranger danger. This isn't abduction. These are young people desperate for community we can do better as a community to support our marginalized children and our at-risk kids. Um, there's so many great groups to get involved with, Maslow's, um, mm -hmm. Joe's Place, Hearts with the Mission, all of these people are serving traffic victims every day and are not, and no one knows, and no one's celebrating and getting involved and helping them. And, and so I'm, I'm a big, proponent of ensuring that we know what to look for and who's most at risk, because then we're really equipped to protect our families and keep our communities safe. Did you fear that there was ever going to be, that he was going to contact you after you ran? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. I used to actually take one of my first interviews with the local newspaper. I did like behind a sheet so you could only see my silhouette and I used like an alias. It was and I would always, when I would do first two news, I think probably with KTVL and KOBI, I would say things like, but I will never say his name. Like, I always make sure to put it out there. I was so afraid in the beginning. Sure. Um, 
And then I started working so much with cops. Now, year to date, I've trained over 100,000 officers and agents across the country. And now I think I wish he would. Shoot. I wish he would try to call me today. I have so many people I could call. But (laughs) back then, you don't have any social capital, right? Like you literally know no one. You're starting over as literally a a homeless person. No money, no resources, no connections a whole lot of trauma and a lot of stigma and a huge criminal record. And it's scary, Mm -hmm. but the more you dig in and the more you, you stick it out and the more connections you make, um, the more confident you become in telling your truth and, and knowing that if, that if something were to happen, you have people you could reach out to. Um, Was there any sort of, I know you said there was fear sort of right after that, obviously any other like PTSD, are there any triggers for you? Something happens or you see something? Yeah. Like what? I mean, I have really bad sensory um, sensory overload. So if it gets too much noise everywhere, I actually feel like I'm going to have a panic attack. Mm. Um, there's little things. In the beginning, it was a lot worse than it is today. I'm so grateful I've got a lot of therapy and EMDR. And also my, my community of faith has helped me learn how to get heal through some of those things. Sure. And I have my own grounding techniques now. But I can remember the first time my husband ever um, disciplined one of our kids and he would say to her, get up, you're faking it. She was doing like wet, wet noodle at three. Like, no, daddy, I don't want to go to bed. She's just being a wet noodle like type of behavior. And I remember him pulling on her arm and saying, get up, you're faking it. And I had this flash of anger that I wanted to attack my husband. <laughs> but I was like, you don't know that she's faking it. Mm-hmm. Get off of her. Maybe you're hurting her. And he was like, whoa, babe, like this yeah. Not responding normal, and I processed that, and I could remember a time when my trafficker, um, he would beat you until you stopped flinching. He would say, "You're faking it. I'm not hitting you that hard. If you stop flinching, I'll stop hitting." And so you'd have to like stand yourself up, take a breath, and prepare to take a hit, which is so like traumatic in your brain to know that taking a breath to prepare for hardship is actually a trigger that is causing you internally to have a visceral response of feeling sick or a feeling like I'm going to panic. And so it's almost like in the time that you want to take a breath to calm down, that very moment is actually causing you to panic more and you don't know why. And so processing through that has been a really long journey of figuring out why am I responding certain way to certain things? And then also finding that line of like, what is a normal, healthy, emotional response for someone overstepping their boundaries, for someone you know, being out of line for someone hurting my feelings Mm -hmm. for me to feel not included for like, there's a, there's a hard balance of figuring out what's a normal, healthy, emotional response and what's what's an actual trigger. Yeah. And I look at you and I look at your life and you are incredibly positive, but even telling your story, you hit these emotional pockets where it's just like, like all of this comes out and then you're able to instantly kind of go back to okay, but that's over and this is today and this is now. A lot of victims who are in this don't, they're not as lucky as you, right? Yeah. I mean, there's still things I struggle with all the time. Mm -hmm. There's still issues that are are very deep to me that mean a lot and are, I mean, sensationalism and and knowing what to look for is a really, really hot button for me. It's been my my soapbox from day one. Um, whenever people talk about kidnapping, it makes me really, really upset because I feel like we're missing it. And it's then all the hard work that we've been doing mm-hmm. to try to raise awareness is completely dismissed. And 
Um, and it undoes all the really hard work that advocates have been working so hard for. And marketing the movement has been actually a topic that we've been talking to the TED Talk about for a while because it's something that's really I'm passionate about. But everyone has something, right? We've all, I have survivors that I work with that are peers of mine and they lived through the foster care system. And so they have really strong and valid feedback to the child justice system and the child welfare system. Um, I have friends who have lived through juvenile justice, a lot of their lives in and out of juvie and chronic runaways for a reason, right? And so they have really great, valuable lived experience to help um, show people the different ways to reform the juvenile justice system. And so we all come with something. It's not just the story of trafficking, but we also have really specific barriers we've navigated that we bring to the table when we're trying to um, create change. So you were saying that, you know, when you first went to, to Vegas and your parents sort of knew, your mom knew something was wrong, like, you know, it could just be drug use and they never really got that it was human trafficking. For parents out there right now, grandparents, friends, whatever, what are the signs to look for, especially with the victims? So we know like, hey, something's not right and it could be this. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, I, predatory, Predatory behavior is determined based on crime, right? And so when you look at who's at risk in elementary age, when you're talking specifically about human trafficking, I think it's important to identify there's five different types of child sex abuse, right? There's child abuse imagery, there's sex tourism, there's child exploitation, child trafficking, all very different crimes, all very, the predatory behavior for each is very different. What happens when we ball it all up and just call it trafficking is we're missing some of the right. warning signs for all these different predatory behaviors. So elementary school children who are involved in exploitation or trafficking typically is happening at somebody that they know and trust like a parent or a grandparent. So signs you wanna look for as a school teacher, as a child welfare worker are going to be very different. They're gonna appear very much like child sex abuse, child, um, molestation. You want to be really, really know professionally what to look for as a teacher and child welfare worker. Okay. Middle school age, if you're protecting your kids. Also, I would keep in mind, if you have an elementary school child, um, oftentimes it can be the, the predator is actually grooming the parent. They're mm. targeting single moms so they can get access to their kids. So as the mom or as a grandparent that's, uh, that's the, the guardian of their grandkids, be careful who's befriending you, mm. who's the coach or the teacher or the whomever that's getting a little too friendly with your family. Those would be some red flags that you want to be thoughtful of. Okay. Elementary school, you really want to look online. you got to get parent filters on your kids' apps. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of grandparents who are custodians of their grandkids, and they are a generation that just knows nothing about gaming, nothing about how to look for the game, um, you know, parental apps on gaming. Gaming systems are huge for boys and girls, um, not just social media, right? Like my my ten year old doesn't have social media, but she plays Roblox, and so how do we put on some filters to right. know who she's talking to? And then with with high school, it's going to be very much the a lot of peers a lot of peer pressure, a lot of a pretend boyfriend or someone who they consider a scouter, which is exactly what we saw with the Maxwell, Jelaine Maxwell in the mm -hmm. Epstein case, scouter behavior. Oftentimes it's another female because um, warning flags are down because by the time you get to high school, you're starting to to see and look and feel and, and at least a little bit, you know, if something's not right. So oftentimes uh, a same gender is used to create trust 
but also social media. That's when you're starting to really get on TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram and all things. And so teaching kids what to look for in predatory behavior in terms of who slides into your DMs and what to do when you're at a party that you don't feel comfortable. It's not a sudden abduction. It's how do I get out of a, a party is, did my parents put Uber on my phone? Do I know who to call um, for a taxi or a quick ride? Have I role played with my parent on how I get out of a situation like that makes me uncomfortable? Oh, I forgot I was supposed to water the plants. I told my mom she's out of town. I don't care what you say. Have you role played with your kid yeah. what they're going to say if they're in a situation that makes them uncomfortable? Because what happens for kids is they just don't even know what to do. So then they sit through the uncomfort and then the discomfort. And then it's that little bit of boundary has now been crossed in their lives. And that's what predators do. It's tiny, tiny steps at a time. And we're only teaching them for the big help, help, help instead of teaching them that first time that they're feeling uncomfortable. And then I would say the same thing for young adults off at college. I have a 20 year old now, she's off at college, and we do the same things that we had done in high school, uncomfortable behaviors. Do you have um, get out apps on your phone that you can call for rides? If you went with someone and they were your ride and now they're making you uncomfortable, how can you leave? Do you have a couple different, what we would call escape plans in your brain Um, if one doesn't work out, what's a second backup option? And at least talking through those, even just once, makes kids feel empowered that they have options. Fantastic. And and for parents, I mean, you have to have those uncomfortable conversations and you, you have to do it, you know, at elementary school level. I mean, you just have to. Yeah, absolutely. Communication is going to be the key. You want your kids to talk to you about things. So be thoughtful of your facial expressions when they're talking to you about smaller things. Now, definitely talk to your younger kids about there's so many great resources out there. Good touch, bad touch, good picture, bad picture. Those are books that a lot of schools actually have in elementary school. Now, Mm -hmm. find out if your school district is teaching that. Um, We we don't want to put it just on schools. We, especially right now, and a lot of kids aren't in school. So internet safety is huge, especially with um, with pictures, because you'd be surprised. You've got a kid that's on a gaming site. They think they're talking to another friend, and that friend asks for a photo, um, and it feels like an innocent photo at first. But it's just testing the boundary of the child. Will they do it without telling a parent just of a smiling face? Mm-hmm. And so we're not thinking through, I think, how predators are testing the boundaries and we're teaching kids only that one, like, oh, stranger danger, run, right. scream for mom. You're like, but what about the little tiny thing that feels a little uncomfortable, but isn't so bad that it's not sounding an alarm? Why aren't we teaching them that? Because that's where it really begins. That's that slippery slope. For sure. Um, you do have, as I mentioned, you're the author of In Pursuit of Love. So if people are interested, that's a, a great place to start. But what's up? Um, what are you up to these days? I know you have a podcast. Yeah, so we run, our school is called Elevate Academy. It's mm-hmm. the largest online school for survivors of human trafficking in the world. We've had 756 students in eight countries and three languages. So I am busy running a school. Thank you helping survivors figure out their now what in life. Mm. Um, And so that's, you know, we're always looking for support and volunteers and help if you guys want to help other women with their now what and their escape and and navigating those barriers ahead for each of them. Um, But on a, you know, on another personal side, I still work a lot with law enforcement, still do a lot of trainings, um, working cases, taking the stand at trial, um, doing lots of, of stuff to help with that criminal kind of justice side of it. And yeah, the book came out this January and 
um, working with different people on that. And it's just been great. We have a podcast that just came out called Trafficking Truths. So it talks about all these seven different myth busters, uh, myths in terms of human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And one of the greatest tools that we just came out with is called Find Your Lane. It helps people identify their fight, um, their lane in the fight against trafficking. And so it's a really fun, free, interactive quiz. It's just kind of like, what type of personality do you have? And then it matches it with the different nine ways that you can fight trafficking, whether it's prevention or awareness, demand reduction, policy, restoration. There's so many ways. Sometimes fighting trafficking can seem too big. It's like, sure. gosh, where do you even begin? And we wanted to create this resource free of charge to the public to just help you figure out where to begin. Well, I mean, I just, I salute you. I am in love with your passion for this. Thank you. And people told me, they're like, oh, you're going to interview Rebecca Bender. She's awesome. And I was like, yeah, I'll find out for myself. And you truly are. <laughs> you truly are. I mean, a lot of people, you know, I love that you're helping other victims turn into survivors with their now what, because I can't even imagine what a scary and exciting place that would be, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've, so many people want to focus on the rescue and that's great and that's needed. But I personally have lived that through that moment of sitting there and thinking like, all right, where's the fairy godfather is going to come bibbity bobbity boomy into this some <laughs> great freedom you all talk about. Like this sucks too. Living in food stamps, government subsidized housing. I've got a criminal record in small town, Oregon. I got prostitution on my record. I can't go get a job anywhere where people are going to talk. And and so it's still like, it's not easy. It's still really hard. And you don't know what you're good at. You don't know what you're gifted at. Oftentimes, you're t like in my situation, you know, your 20s have been stolen from you. Yeah. It's time where you really figure out what you're good at and you learn how to do resumes or stuff you should be learning at college. You don't know. And now you're almost 30 and you're feeling behind and and you don't know how to date and you don't know how, like, it's just so much. And so we have cohorts and groups that survivors go through. Um, but really, we also want to create tools to help raise awareness. It's not just about my one story. Mm -hmm. It's hundreds of women that have gone through our school. It's the hundreds of thousands of law enforcement officers we've worked with and trained in cases. And so it's about really creating tangible resources that the public needs to fight trafficking. For yeah. us, that's a big deal. Were you shocked when, I mean, I'm curious how you met your husband. And was it, was it something that was like, did you ever think you would get married? after all of this happened to you? You know, I actually, I obviously, I've the, the story is big. Please go buy the book. But Please. I had fled to London. I lived in London for a year. I call it my Richard Gere year. I thought that maybe pretty women was real and I could run off with, it all didn't work well. But I can remember flying back to Oregon and thinking, what am I gonna, who am I gonna date? Where am I going to live? It was 09. The recession had just hit. Both of my parents had been laid off. I was just going to sleep on couches. Mm -hmm. It just felt really like, what about my desire to help trafficked women? Because I'd started doing things in the UK and it just felt really hopeless to come back and that I didn't know what I would do. And when I met my husband, the first thing I said to him at our very first date was, I've got this crazy story. I'm a survivor of I said forced prostitution at the time. I didn't even have the own, my own language yet for what I had been through. It's how early I was in my recovery. So we tell people not to go public too soon. You don't know what you're saying. Um, but I told him I had this crazy story and that if he didn't want people to know that he shouldn't call me back on a second date because I knew that I was called to tell what I had been through to the world. 
And he took a minute and then he looked at me and said, if God is telling you to speak out, who am I to tell you no? And I thought, oh, if you like it, then you should have put a ring on it. <laughs> and he's a so, keeper, clearly. He is. Yeah, 11 years, three more kids. We have four daughters now. We've been married 11 years. And I'm just so grateful that there is life um, after, after exploitation. And mm. it's not easy, but it's possible. Okay. Well, you have given me goosebumps about 18 times during this interview, but <laughs> we're going to wrap up. I'm going to let you go, but I want to get to the final three. Uh, best advice you've ever been given? Oh, don't be so arrogant that you expect everybody to become an expert in human trafficking the first day they hear about it. <laughs> Who gave oh, you no. that? Who gave you that advice? A, a board member of mine who's a good friend. Uh, it didn't mean it in a mean way towards sure. me. It's just like, hey, in the field, like we all, we're expecting people to hear about trafficking at one community awareness event. And then all of a sudden we're annoyed that they don't know the right language mm. yet. Like, don't be so arrogant. Like give people, you, it took you 12 years to become an expert. Give them 12 years, you know? And that created a lot more patience and grace in me for people that are just getting involved in the fight of trafficking. Yeah, I've said this before. I believe we have buttons and on, on us and, you never know what button you're pushing for people. You know, one story or someone who buys your book, that could be the button that takes them to become an advocate as well. So just keep pushing buttons for sure. That's good. What's your happy place? Oh, I love the river. I'm, I'm an Oregon girl, so mm -hmm. I love going to a quick little swim hole down the street after dinner and sitting with my kids and a glass of wine. And <laughs> okay. Obviously, I'm not driving. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds perfect to me. Uh, final meal, final drink. What would that look like? Oh man, tacos and margaritas. Who who go? You can't ever go wrong with carne asada and a good spicy margarita. You're, you are a girl <laughs> after my own heart. I will tell you that much. Um, Rebecca Bender, one more time. I just want to thank you for sharing your story, your heart, and your soul, and your brain. I mean, I just this community, and I think the the human trafficking world, I guess, is is really lucky to have you, that you're this mm. dynamic voice out there that's actually creating change. Thank you. That means a lot. Well, thank you. Thank you for sure. If you are listening to this podcast on Apple's podcast app or Spotify, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can also watch it at ktvl.com or on YouTube. Just search for Offscript uh, with Trish Gloss. But one more time, I want to thank Rebecca Bender. And I found all sorts of things about you at RebeccaBender.com. Dot org. Yes, dot or dot org. Sorry, yes. Rebecca okay. Bender dot org. That's where I would yeah. go for more information. Dot com will take you to a children's author. So then it really confuses you because both are authors. <laughs> but I did not write about the bird and the giraffe, although she seems like a lovely lady. People are like, wait, this doesn't look right. This is not wait, is the this right. About trafficking? A bird and a giraffe? What is happening? Oh, Rebecca. We get each other's emails all the time. It's That's really pretty funny. cute, actually. RebeccaBender.org, everyone. Um, one more time, Rebecca, thank you so much. I so appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me.